Do you love your monkey or do you love turntables and tea? I'm Charlie. And I'm Corey. And if you couldn't tell from the intro, this week we will be discussing George Michael's Faith, his um, debut solo album and a perfect time to be doing it because uh, uh, just a few days ago, George Michael was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Sadly, posthumously, that's very unfortunate, but he is now in there and he was even inducted by his Wham! bandmate, Andrew Ridgely. Couldn't think of a better person to induct the guy. That's super cool. Uh, you know, we didn't even talk about it before we got in here. Did you watch any of the uh, the ceremony? I, I have watched clips online. I did not sit through the whole thing. And um, the replay, it's over four hours long. I'm not sitting through all of that. That's uh, that that's too much, I'm afraid. But um, I have seen some of the photos and highlights. And I always like to look at that stuff. That's always very cool. It's not in my newsfeed as much as I thought it would be. I got to go search it out. I actually forgot it was last weekend. Yeah. What was uh, it Sun- Sunday? It was it aired on Friday night. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, I, I wasn't sitting through all four hours of that. I'm not. <laughs> no, because that's just too much padding. There's no need for all of that, in my opinion. But yeah. Did you get to see the final jam? No, not yet. I haven't watched that. Me neither. No. But. Um, I'm excited to see a few things on there, especially the Missy Elliott stuff, the Rage stuff. Yeah, there's um, yeah, it is. There are. It was a a pretty diverse class this year of artists, I have to say. Yeah. But yeah, one of them this year was none other than Mr. George Michael, and uh, when it came to picking albums, just seeing this list, it's like this is the diverse group of people. But I knew this was what I needed to do. It's been a real while since we've done an 80s album specifically an 80s pop album so um i and i and that is my even though i wasn't alive in the 80s it is my comfort zone in many ways to discuss 80s pop so really excited to be doing this and um, this one was a treat to discuss uh, and to research and really looking forward to this yeah this is a wild one man I, so many memories and i was only what six years old but like it was that much in the public eye in the american public eye uh but in public eye of the world and there's such iconic images and such iconic sounds that definitely come off this album yeah especially in the american oftentimes with british artists you hear that that success in their home country was most overwhelming but actually this time it was the united states where this album had its greatest success easily i mean i know he's come out and 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 i'm paraphrasing but you know coming out of the wham he was saying out of the wham coming out of wham (laughs) he coming out of wham he was saying that he wanted and believed and i think it's very important to to focus on that or, or at least in my opinion the his belief of himself um to be up there in the ranks of Prince and Michael Jackson. And that's his own words. Um, yeah. You know, so it's it's a it's a wild, wild, a wild thing to see. But yeah, coming into the American audience, this probably will be my first, not probably, this will be my first hot tea take. I feel, in my opinion, it has a lot of Americanness in it on purpose because I think he really wanted to put his foot in that door so to speak coming into this into this album especially by himself 
Yes, and um, with that being said, I think this is a good time to get into the whole the whole background of it. Um, yeah. So yes, yeah, so in 1986, George Michael uh, and his birthday Andrew Ridgely ended their incredible uh, tenure in the, as the duo Wham. Um, they had major hits in that time period. They ended out with they ended their run with a concert at Wembley Stadium in London. Um, to a sold out crowd. So, so then. yeah, that was serious stuff, but the split was completely amicable. Um, Andrew Ridgely knew that his um, partner was really ambitious and wanted to do stuff outside of the Wham box. And um, a couple of the Wham singles were actually billed as George Michael's solo singles, even though they were recorded during that time, which is a bit confusing. But um, that is how uh how it was done actually um. But um, yeah, George Michael did want to get out of that, and uh, he did want to appeal to an American audience. He especially wanted to go more into the realm of R and B soul music specifically, rather than just the straight up pop of Wham, which many saw as very bubblegum, which was easy to do with a song like "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go," but um. He really felt he wasn't taken seriously, uh, but he knew that he was a serious musician. He was not just a teeny bopper guy. He was a serious songwriter and musician. And um, it's just so crazy to think because those Wham songs, even if they seemed lightweight, um, those songs have held up in many ways. And they're uh, the fact that a couple of them continue to be so popular to this day, I think says a lot about strong um, song composition. Yeah, and I'm, I might be speaking out of turn here because I don't know the ins and outs, but you know, this is him stepping away from that cookie cutter, machine driven boy group, you know, boy duo. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I I didn't have them as being, uh, you know, the writing and producing their own stuff during Wham. Maybe they did. He did. Um, he did write. Yeah. Um, almost all of the songs during Wham. Well, then that, then, then I take it back. That's amazing, and it's it's good to see him come outside of that. It's neat. We get so many of these, and they're always they're always unique. But we get so many of these where we see these these artists that are in larger groups, um, you know, find themselves and and stake a claim on their own, which is is. I would have to imagine one of the hardest things, scariest things to do, because I'm, for anybody who doesn't know Wembley, Wembley is like I, the equal of going out playing Madison Square or, you know, oh, what I'm it's saying? bigger like, than Madison. Square. Well, yeah, of course, seat wise. <laughs> but I'm saying like in an American mindset, uh, Wembley Stadium is the premier, uh, the premier stage for many, many different high level things it's a big deal so going out on top like that and staking your claim by yourself has to be a super daunting experience yes it was and even though george did write the songs in wham some with andrew ridgely they had a specific style that they just that was what they were doing and uh, it was reflective of where george michael was when he wrote these songs but being in your early his early 20s, he was evolving and he was getting other ideas that just didn't fit in that wham box because these that these two men had created. Um, because they did 
make pop songs. They made this stuff. Like their first hit single was called Wham Rap. That was the name of the song. Like <laughs> Wham Rap 86. I know I know that so was, was the so remix. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> the remix. It's so that I'm and I'm getting off on a tangent, and shame on me for not knowing. I I will be the first to apologize to look at those guys and be like, they're two good looking guys, and it's an easy, you know, they're talented dude, but it's an easy uh machine piece. So it's good to hear that, oh, it that, is. that's not the case, you know. Uh yeah, they were definite sex symbols. <laughs> um uh I not hard to see why, but um yeah, if you do want to learn more about Wham, actually, I highly recommend the Netflix documentary about them that came out this year, Wham. It actually is narrated by both George and Andrew. Um, archive clips are used of George Michael, of course, but any interest in them at all, do watch it. I think you'll come away learning a lot about the two. Uh, I know I knew stuff that I'd never learned before, even as an 80s pop nerd <laughs> that I am. Super interested. Yeah, definitely check that out. But we are here to discuss um that breakaway from Wham. And uh, it was pretty, this was being built up. Actually, his first uh, post-Wham, real post-Wham single uh, was um a duet with the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin, um, which was I Knew You Were Waiting For Me. And that was a number one hit, big deal. But uh, it definitely signified that this was somebody who really wanted to be taken seriously and wanted to set himself up for greatness, um, especially by going uh, toe-to-toe with living music royalty. He's got some balls on him. I'll tell yep. you that. From what, I, from what I've learned reading and, and going through, he's he definitely believes in himself. I'm going to keep going back to that because, I, in my opinion, that sings throughout this. Yeah, that was... Um, where he was and the first couple of songs for the album were recorded not long a- um were recorded not long after the final wham concert but then things went on hold for a bit and um recording of the album really picked back up in february of 87 and continued over the next few months um but uh and the really the era kicked off interestingly with a soundtrack single that ended up being on the album but it was initially just a soundtrack song but in the fall of 87 this album was released in october of that year and um the response was pretty quickly very warm actually um uh i mean people were definitely ready to hear george michael do what he had to do and uh he did reach out to an audience that he hadn't had before, not just the Wham! Teen Girl audience. There were adults listening to these songs and enjoying them. And um, I mean, it's one of it just was an immediate iconic album and image. It's now sold over 25 million copies worldwide, which is crazy. And in the United States, he wanted to get that American audience it works. This was actually the number one album of 1988. He outsold Michael Jackson, Prince, and many, many others. None of them could be topped by this. Yeah, oh, he was coming on the, the heels of Bad, and then he's, what, four or five years after Purple Rain, so yeah. That's wild, man. Good for him. I mean, yeah, this uh, he George Michael even said, I know a lot of people are going to compare this to bad because it came out only like two months after Michael Jackson's bad. 
But he said, like, but I think they're very different albums, which I would say he's correct about that. They definitely are different in sound in a lot of ways. Um, I think George Michael has a lot more in common with Prince than he does Michael Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> and we talked about it a little bit before we jumped on, but especially him being in the studio writing the meat and potatoes of this album, if not the whole album, as he goes along with session players and really f realizing the sound as it happens, which I thought was a really neat way. I went at this one a little bit different and ended up reading um, just, you know, initial reading on the wiki about it. And I was blown away by that, like that he's writing and producing and sitting inside of this, just letting the music happen was a pretty cool thing. Yeah, absolutely. That was what he was doing. And uh, yeah, it obviously paid off for him very nicely. But um, the funny thing was about it all, he wanted that um, acclaim and fame, but then he didn't want it. <laughs> in the middle of this album cycle, he didn't want it anymore. And he retreated in a lot of ways after this. But um, when you get this big, you never go away completely. Um, I mean, this is a career-defining album that anybody is... Uh, lucky to have like any artist would be lucky to have an album as successful as this you can say you're an icon with just this album he can do that because this was such a successful release he definitely can and he was already dealing with that mindset and talks you know we we get to talk about that a little bit on this album but one of the quotes that i took away from him is he was saying and I'm, I'll paraphrase it just for the sake of the conversation, but he was saying how he was with somebody and didn't realize how much he had accomplished yet. It hadn't really set into him, just regardless of life and 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 prior to this album. Um, but it, it's it's wild to see that take its toll. You know, I, I I'll play devil's advocate. You didn't think this was going to blow up and you're already part of Wham, you know, you're already almost, I'll say a full-fledged sex symbol, but then you write an album like this and you, as much belief in himself as he had, I feel like you should have saw that coming. <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah, but I will say this in hindsight, it is in some ways kind of in a way, it's surprising how successful some of this was, because in a lot of ways, it doesn't sound like everything else that was popular in 1987 and 1988. This um really does stick out from the pack in a lot of ways. Um, One way this was really signified to me, actually, just a bit ago, um, one column I've mentioned here before is on Stereo Gum. It's called The Number Ones, written by Tr Tom Bryhan. Um. And he's gone through, he goes through every number one hit in U.S. history on the Hot 100. And right now we're, he's in 2011, but just looking through, Faith had four number one hits. And these songs really did not just, they're in between all of these songs that sound so different. I mean, two of these songs, um, a couple of these singles were replaced at number one with songs by Rick Astley. Never gonna give you up. These, this is not that kind of album at all. And But in the long run, it's helped him because this album has held up. Um, it, sounds, it doesn't sound as dated as a lot of the hits of 1987 and 1988 in some 
At times, you could even say he goes for that kind of evergreen, timeless sound. Yeah, I totally agree with you, and I'm trying not to give away too much, but for me, that comes from his, I have to say, love or his infatuation with the American-style rock and roll sound. Or mm-hmm. rockabilly almost in some ways. That time that that's a timeless sound in my opinion. And I think that's again, in my opinion, I think that's where a lot of this timelessness comes from. Not oh. to take away from him at all, but I'm that for me, that's where a lot of this hits. No, it does help with that. We will discuss that when it applies, most definitely. But um yeah, and it, it won the Grammy Award for Album of the Year, and uh, the acclaims just continued. It was number 151 on the most recent Rolling Stone 500 Greatest Albums list, and before that, it was like below 450 on the two previous editions. But this new edition, it moved way up because of uh, just how well it's held up, and I think its influence and um, how beloved these songs are to this day. That's a wild jump. And I saw that and I was like, I wonder why. And I wondered if it was because of the remixed, re-released stuff. Regardless, it's a wild jump that, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm curious to I, see why Rolling Stone says, OK, it went from low I, to almost in the top well, 100. There were different um, a lo- there were different people voting on it. I think it's that okay. simple. Okay. including um younger folks than who did it before who've seen this album's influence. That's cool. I yeah. like that answer. That makes me feel better. <laughs> yeah. And I, I it's not inaccurate, I don't think. And so with that being said, I'm ready to talk about these songs. I really had a fun time diving into these. So Yeah, let's get at them. Most definitely. So um the song begins with the title track, which is Faith, obviously. Um and it begins with an organ which is see that's what i mean when saying this does not sound like other 80s hits because not many other 80s hits i can think of that have an organ intro but um funny enough that organ is actually playing um wham the wham hit freedom um this idea was because of uh, i actually read the 33 and a third um book that came out last year on this album and um really good read if you're interested in this album they talked to almost all of the musicians that participated in this album they talked to a lot of them and one of them the keyboardist chris cameron he actually compared freedom to the work of the classical composer gustav mahler which um made george michael really happy because like that's a serious uh compliment and shows that you're not just a pop flop artist and so um he put it on this cathedral organ setting and uh that's what they did to start off the song but then we go into that rockabilly sound we were mentioning which is known as the bow diddly beat and uh it's throughout this whole song and uh, that's what i mean when saying this it has because of that even though it doesn't sound like the other hits of the day, that lack of Simpsonal, it helps the song sound very timeless. I think. It does. It does. It's perfectly put together inside. I'll, I'll use the word that I wrote in my notes. It's immaculately put together inside of its production 
inside of this composition because it could have easily been a throwaway thought. Like, let's do a little rock and roll, rockabilly, Bo Diddley riff here and see how it goes. But it's fully realized and and why it's a hit. Um, you know, you even get what you don't get a lot on this album. You even get a little solo break here where the instrumentation gets to, sh you know, show its its chops. You don't get that a lot throughout this album. So it's another neat nod to rock and roll, in my opinion here. But hell of a way to start an album, um, especially an album where you're making your debut, so to speak. So really neat way to to get at it here. Yeah, and this was in many ways the kickoff of the Sarah. This was released as a single with the album's release and a massive hit. And it was um, number one, uh, several in um, six countries, including the U.S., and uh, ended up being the number one single of 1988 for the United States. And it had an iconic video. This is, oh, yeah. This is MTV staple when I'm, this is the kind of memories I'm talking about when I was like six at this point. Um, but you'll never forget that video because it was so white background, you know, Rickenbacker jukebox, him in in uh, in cowboy boots, you know, <laughs> leaning up leather jacket. It, it was it was it was it was iconic. Is the only word I can I keep going back to. Yeah, it's an image that will always be associated. It is one of those top MTV era videos that people still remember to this day. Um. For sure. And uh, now I do have to ask you, maybe this is another memory for you. Um, in the late 90s, this was pretty infamously covered by a band called uh, Limp Biscuit. I remember. <laughs> uh, what, what did you think of that? Um, I mean, Fred had a cool yell on it. I thought it's a good song and it's always it has a rock and roll stability that we've already touched on. So it always made sense, I guess, as a cover. I, I don't know. I used to make fun of it. As you <laughs> in should. All, I, in I, all uh, honesty. It's not really composed terribly, though. You know? Well, that's because <laughs> it's a good song. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. They, I used they to, should I used to stick to breaking stuff. I haven't listened stuff. to it for a while. So. I, I think they yeah, should have stuck it, the breaking stuff. But it hit. I mean, it was a crowd pop. It was all, <laughs> you know, even though it, it caught crap um it was it was a pop i've i've seen limb biscuit live twice and both times people want to get down on it i mean fred put his all into it too but all of them did uh on that it was just a weird contrast from what you would expect from them i mean look at what they're doing now he's he's in in full old man gear doing crazy dad stuff so they are they've always been a wild bunch, but yeah, not it was not my favorite back then, I must say. He, he had to calm down a bit over time. Come on. Yeah. They, uh, they, they're gimmicky, so it works for them. Yeah, I'm I'm kinda glad I didn't I was very young during the limp biscuit era, not gonna lie. They got cool riffs, man. They <laughs> they're just I, I use the word gimmicky in in a very respectful tone. Mm. Um they're not the worst band in the world by any means. Uh, no. West Bor West Borland is a fucking guitar genius. Um, oh. but, but I I mean we'll, we'll have to do Limp Biscuit one day. <laughs> I, I get twenty twenty four on turntables and tea Limp Biscuit. Yeah, not not the hot dog album though. I'm talking about early Limp Biscuit. 
<laughs> hear them before they started getting crazy. But uh, but speaking of cool riffs, I think the second song here has a very cool Middle Eastern synth riff. Father figure. Um, this was actually originally envisioned as a dance track. Um, but uh, when George was working on it, he just wanted to hear something in the mix, cut the snare out, and it created something kind of dreamy. So uh, he made the ballad, and um, it's uh, just such a... It does have this Middle Eastern synth riff in it, and it actually, this is crazy, it sounds like it has a gospel choir. It's only two backing vocalists on the song, which is... um insane and uh in that column i mentioned um the number ones um tom braham wrote that father figure is quote a love song but it's a love song that hints at transgression at role play and shifting power dynamics michael sings about wanting to become the most important person in someone's life he's a romantic but he doesn't sing about wanting to be a lover Instead, he wants to be a father figure, a preacher, a teacher, unquote. I mean, that I couldn't have said it better myself. It is that um, love song that, yeah, it's a transgressive love song. And uh, obviously, um, George Michael was later outed as being gay 10 years after this album uh, was number one. But um, yeah, obviously. It's been very much seen as a queer love song because it has that forbidden element to it. But uh, I mean, either way, this is a cool as fuck song. It means whatever you want it to mean. I love it. Yeah, it's it's a super unique and original sound right here on track two, which I love. Um, you know, we had something that's rooted in in the American listeners. We had a first track that was rooted inside of our subconscious listener but this next one really makes you stop what you're doing and enjoy it and rightfully so it builds up inside of it at least three different times but never goes over top of itself uh, and it really finds its pocket in this dreamlike composition i i read that about the snares and i've tried to like imagine this snare in there of course they they've rewritten it at that point but this is what i'm talking about the kudos to him for being inside of this studio you look at the personnel listing for this and it it reads like there's a giant band but it's really him just vibing with these session musicians and finding his sound and i'm so glad you touched on the backing vocals because it's a it, it sticks to this point of he's doing so much he's getting so much sound out of this very minimalistic setting of himself and some session players and and he does such a great job with it in the production that you think exactly like you said you think he's got this at least five six person gospel mini choir behind him when in fact it's just two people really well done i it this one sings to me a lot harder musically than faith um and it it really really makes a point in my opinion of hey i'm i'm way much more than a pretty face coming out of wham oh yeah um i mean this is definitely a more sophisticated ballad than careless whisper that's for that's for sure <laughs> um but uh What's crazy about this to me, this is one of the things that's kind of shocking about how successful this is. Um, 
This song is almost six minutes long, and usually when a song's that long, it's edited for the radio. This was not. And it still topped the charts in the United States, but actually not anywhere else. And I just have to say, America got it right, but it, overall, I have had enough of crime like this song not being number one in every country. <laughs> uh, that, that is all I am going to say about that. I, I do not like that. Um, And the song has a cool video, too. He's a cab driver. He's got a romance with a model. And uh, it, the video actually has more views on YouTube than the Faith video. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wild. It It is pretty wild. But, um... Yeah, I will say at the Rock Hall induction, I forgot to mention they had um, Adam Levine of Maroon 5 perform Faith. I'm I'm glad nobody took on Father Figure. That uh that would have been a real tough one to do justice for. Glad no one did. There you go. There you go. Yeah. It's definitely a high bar. Most definitely. But uh um, in the meantime, we're also got, we're going to discuss another song not done at the Rock Hall, but for probably obvious reasons, especially if it was on Disney Plus. This one being "I Want Your Sex" parts one and two. So, um, yeah, this is the most controversial single on the album. Um, this was the soundtrack song. It, the part one was released as a single on the soundtrack to Beverly Hills Cop Two, which is weird to think about because this song is just so. Outside of any movie, I feel like its whole um, legacy. <laughs> I don't know, man. It, it's it, for me. It hangs right there as far as its part of its legacy as this like pure '80s, like time. It's something you stick in an '80s time capsule if you want to explain the '80s, you know, uh, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> that that is uh, that is not inaccurate. So um, yeah, this um, so this. What ended up, what was part one was a single, and it was it's a very spare funk sound, and it was very quickly compared to Prince, especially the song Kiss, which was a number one hit the year prior. Um, I mean, there was even a critic who said he outprinced Prince, and um, I I wouldn't say that, but here's what I will say: actually, commercially, this was bigger than any of Prince's singles that year. Um. Rightly or wrongly, it was. Um, but uh, yeah, the title alone kind of implied this was going to be controversial. It was banned by the BBC, except for at nighttime. Uh, Casey Kasem would not say the title on American Top 40, which I, <laughs> I, I love that. I only chuckle because I literally pictured Casey Kasem like holding his mouth when he said that. Yeah. He had... He had no problem yelling about a, a fucking dog dying, but wouldn't say, I want your sex. Oh, have you? Oh, you have to look up the clip of him going off on a rant about the dog dying. Oh, no. My man, Casey Kasem. I it, remember. it is hysterical. <laughs> that I have to look it up. Oh, yeah. It was from a couple years before, I want your sex. But um, <laughs> it's quite funny. So, um... Yeah, but this song, it, it did get some criticism, not just for being about sex, but some thought it was especially inappropriate during the AIDS crisis of the 80s. However, George Michael had this to say. He said, yeah, the song's about a monogamous relationship. There was even a disclaimer put in that in the video. He even, um, well, his girlfriend at the time is heavily featured in the video, Madel Kathy Jung, and uh, 
she has explore monogamy written in lipstick on her in the video for this so yeah i i never took it as promiscuous i mean it literally has a line in there that says one on one is the best and so, you know in between the course he just says i want you <laughs> yeah like um but i mean if he thought he was going to be able to release this song and not get for lack of better he words, knew what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, come on, you know darn right well this isn't going to play on the radio. Yep, but uh, of course, surprise, surprise, the controversy got a lot of people to buy the song, and um, it made it the number two in the U.S. and number three in the U.K. And um, it, it was it was blocked from the top spot by YouTube's. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Which what a 180 lyrically from this. I love that. <laughs> But, uh, also a great song but um yeah but so interestingly uh, the b-side to the I want your sex single in the summer of 87 was part two uh they had subtitles rhythm one was lust that was what we heard on the radio and rhythm two was brass in love which uh brings in a whole horde section um which is um another facet of funk that we're getting on this song, which I really do appreciate. But on the album, we get it both together, and it's almost 10 minutes long. But um, I have to say the composition moves along very nicely. It doesn't stay in the same place for too long. And just having those two parts really helps it all go by very nicely. I mean, it it is a bit of a... It's very clearly Prince influence. But... Is that a bad thing? No, it's not. I mean, it's certainly not the worst uh, Prince riff that I've heard. That's for sure. It does, I guess. I, you know, it didn't even stick in my head, and now I'm playing them back and forth, and it it does. It has that Princey riff. I get. I, I I give it that. Um, the radio one, the rhythm, the radio edit. You know, the the first piece for me is is perfectly fine when we get it all together here i'm a little bit on the opposite side of the coin because it does like you said it doesn't stick in the same spot too long but my my criticism here is that the changes every 16 bars they don't really do anything to elevate this composition. So when it's one piece like this and we get this nine minute and change version here of, of rhythm one and, and, and two, or I'm sorry, piece one and two, it just never takes off the way I think it should or the way it should as a composition. It changes up enough that we can see it's two different thoughts, but it really... It stays around too long for me on, on this one. So I mean, that, that's where I'm at. I, I can kind of see what you're saying. It's not the best 10 minute song I've ever heard. <laughs> I'll, yeah. It's it, no Venice bitch. Um, <laughs> this is the flip side of doing it as it comes inside of your own head. Sometimes what you think is epic or what you, you put down as an epic run, unfortunately, ends up thought about too much and again this is this is a tea take from me a hot tea take from me i just think it's overthought i think it's all it's very borderline contrived when it goes into that second um 
that second thought that with the horns and all it's it it just it doesn't hit it doesn't hit for me well you know what's funny guess who really disagreed with you George Michael. <laughs> he um he really distanced himself from this song later on. Um, let me. He really distanced himself from this song later on. And he later said um he was only really proud of the second part, actually, because he thought part one was too much of a prince copy. He said, like, I was wow. really enamored of him at the time, and I don't think I should have like been that enamored of one of my colleagues. Huh. <laughs> Which um such an interesting take, considering that Prince had a whole factory of protégés that were sounding like him. It's just such an interesting take, um, in my opinion. But, I mean, the, I, I I don't think he outdid Prince um, artistically no. by any means here. No. Um, but it's not... I mean, it is funky. It does what it needs to do. It's not even close to being my favorite song here. But uh, I do have kind of a funny story about this song, actually. So one night, um, uh, one night I came to karaoke with my mom, brother, and his now fiance. And um, funny story, a guy at karaoke sang I Want Your Sex in front of my mom. And she was so embarrassed to be hearing that in front of her kids. I thought you were going to say you sang this. No, 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 no. I've done a few George Michael songs because he he has those great songs to sing, but not this one. Not this one. Yeah, just not in front of Ma. Well, yeah, especially not in front of Ma. But no, I just, uh, I just have, I feel like this song is too, um, too much of a groove to really sing. You know what I mean? At karaoke. Agreed. I've done I've done Faith and Father Figure. Those are much better karaoke songs, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. It is is it it is a little bit too much of a groove, too laid back, which is crazy because I didn't remember it as a laid back groove, more so in its in its legend and you know in its legacy. It it in my mind sits as this controversial song. Um, kudos to him for being self-conscious enough later in life to say first part I thought I was too Prince I think it's being a little too hard on himself in all honesty I don't think it is a bitten riff I think it is just a sub-genre that he was inside of that being said and, and learning that from you I think it would be so cool to picture what it would have been if it was just that second part like that those lyrics on that second part, if that all would have fit, and if he would have felt more like it was his own song, that's a wild self-conscious take on on yeah. his own music. Super cool. Yeah, most definitely. But um, with that being said, I think that was a good time to tell you all. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon. We're on all of them. Also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Turntables and T Podcasts and on X, formerly known as Twitter, at um at Turntables T. Also give us a nice review and rating. We'd really appreciate it. So we can keep doing things like talking about George Michael's faith, which we're gonna continue doing with its fourth track, which is one more try. Um, we are back in ballad territory. For this one, I, uh, this one's notable. George said that he wrote and recorded this song in the span of eight hours. Um, and um, 
uh, in that book I read about it, the keyboard player, Chris Cameron, said this song was inspired specifically by two ballads from the Spinners, who were also inducted to the Rock Hall this year. Um, yeah. The songs being I Could Never Repay Your Love and Love Don't Love Nobody. He played them like on the keyboard in the studio and George liked it and uh, came up with this. Um, and... Uh, yeah, he created another six-minute-long ballad, but uh, not really like Father Figure. This one's a bit more grandiose in its sound, but it was another number one hit. And uh, this one, interestingly, not only did it top the Hot 100 in the U.S., it also topped Adult Contemporary and the R&B charts, which were at the time called the Black Singles charts. Um, and uh, he was uh, that was not common for a white man to do so. And that did not happen again until 2007 that a yeah. white man would top the R&B charts. Um, Timberlake? Robin Thicke. Okay. Lost cool. Without You. Heard that. Yeah. So very, very crazy to think about. But um, this is another song, almost six minutes long, not edited for the radio. Um. This is just, this is definitely a heartbreak ballad. He doesn't want to try it love again. Uh, the highlight of this song is really the vocal. Um, I haven't really talked much about George Michael's vocals on the album. I I mean, Father Figure is also a beautiful performance, but there's so much else going on in the song, and it's really cool that there's a lot else to. This is more of a vocal showcase. He really belts out this one, and um that anguish just really comes through. You can tell it's very real and heartfelt and that, um, he, you know, like, you can you can just tell that. And I don't think the song's the most interesting track musically. It is a bit of a musically kind of a somewhat more standard sounding ballad from 1988. This fits in more with the hit ballads of that year than, um father figure does but i think i can overlook that to an extent because i think the vocal is so strong and passionate yeah i'm right with you it, musically it is what it is and i i say that with respect yeah. um but showcase is the word man showcase is the word i waited to talk about it to this track but he has such a really awesome way of dancing with his lyrics um in my opinion he, he has a really great way of using these swooning lyrics these these really heartfelt lyrics and and learning how to hook them whether they're the hook or not it's a really really beautiful thing that he does and this track here for me, at least, this is really the first time where I got to see his chops all the way to, I mean, he really performs on a very high level here. All of those accolades that you just spoke of are super, super deserving, in in my opinion. This one is really, I mean, I, I, I straight up, like, it reminded me of, like, a Whitney Houston song almost when the first time I heard it, and especially the way he sang it, and I really dug that especially coming out of that long I Want Your Sex, where I was very, very, I'll, I'll use the word disappointed by the end because it didn't hit how I wanted it to. This one took me right back up to the ecstatic level for this album. Uh, this is, I know it's a hit for him, but this one is one that I think, at least for me, 
I didn't give the time of day. And now it's it's one of one of my favorites on the album. Yeah, it's uh, one of those hits that it was popular at the time. It has faded in popularity over the years, um, like in a way that the title track certainly has not. That song hasn't gone anywhere. We still hear Father Figure more than we hear this one. But uh, this one did get performed at the Rock Hall Ceremony by um, Carrie Underwood, which, uh, again, yeah. this is that song for that big voice singer. Yeah. I mean, Mariah Carey did a cover of this song a while back, too. It's that vocal showcase song. I mean, this is the one that your American Idol and the voice contestants are going to do. If they're going to do a George Michael song, they'll probably be picking this one. Makes sense. Make yeah. I got goosebumps when you said Carrie Underwood did this. I want to I want to hear that. Oh yeah, I did like her version quite a bit. I thought she did a lovely job on the song. Um, very cool. Was it? You probably would think she'd be more likely to be singing um George Strait than George Michael, but <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it it worked really well. This it's actually quite lovely to listen to, and I think George himself would have been proud. Heck yeah. But she's actually a huge fan of George Michael. That's awesome. So, yeah, I love that she did that. But um, we're going to move out of ballad territory and go back into the funk with Hard Day. Uh, this is the um other song here where he is credited with all vocals and instrumentals, much like I Want Your Sex Part 1. Okay, yeah, if any song here sounds like Prince, it's this one. Uh, this is very... Like that Prince influence fucking the main reason it does is those pitch shifted vocals at the pitch shifted vocals where he sounds like a woman. It's a very cool technique. He definitely did it to kind of do a duet with himself, which I think is very cool. But um yeah, that idea that technique was used in a few songs on Prince's Sign of the Times album that was also released this year. And um uh, t- this is the one I really hate to be a Debbie Downer. I think this song's fine, but this is not as, it's just not as good when he does it. I'm sorry, this is not as, uh, I mean, it's not as cool as Prince doing If I Was Your Girlfriend. Uh, it's just, um, but it it does have its nice little funk to it. Um, And this was released as a single, but exclusively to the clubs and R&B charts, because it, uh, and it was a top five dance hit. It was remixed by Shep Pettibone, who um, shortly after this uh, really became um, more well-known for his work with Madonna, which I think was at the end of the day a lot more influential than this. But I think this is a fine song. I don't. I think it's the weakest on the first side of the album. And um, just uh, the Prince comparisons hurt it for me, I'm afraid. Yeah, see, for me, it was a little bit too much Michael here. And I didn't do the bad thing at all until I got to this track. Um, I I felt like it was trying too much. The composition in the beginning of this song is so cluttered that right off the jump, his lyrics are lost inside of the, 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 well, yeah, inside of the production, inside of the way it's produced. But inside of the composition as well. Um, and for me, that happens a lot in this song, and I don't dig it. Uh, where you're talking about that that duo stuff that I didn't even put two and two together on the Prince, but I can totally see where you're coming from. I I really think it's sloppy. 
like sloppy uh, compared to everything else that's going on. Maybe I would chalk it up to the other side of the coin that I was talking about before, where you're writing by yourself and you're doing so much and it really sounds great in your head, but it it just ends up being a little too much on the plate. That's where I'm at with hard day. Uh, yeah, not my favorite. I, I thought this was the start of the second side, um, which oh, it from, might be. I, I think it, it might be. I got, I have to look, but if it is, I, I say a really weak way to start that side. But if it's not, it's a really weak way to end the, the first side. Regardless, not my favorite on yeah. this album. No, it is the beginning of side two. That makes a lot more sense because I did forget that I want your sexes over nine minutes long. So obviously <laughs> that took more of side one. <laughs> what am I thinking? That's what happens when you listen to the straight through with no side turning. Of um, course, of course. Yeah, I don't own a physical copy of this album, actually, which is pretty crazy to think. Um but unfortunately, I do think that things pick up a bit with the next song, which was not a single one anyway. Um, Hand to Mouth, which is definitely the most political song on the album. Um, and uh, he, he said that it was really a statement against conservative politicians such as Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, because this is the era of them. Um, and it started off... Uh, uh, he wrote it in response to the L.A. highway shootings in the summer of 1987. It was a series of uh, uh, seemingly unrelated incidents. But um, George was pretty disturbed by it when he was spending time in the and He wrote a song originally titled Gun Control. But when he went back to England, there was a shooting in Hungerford, Berkshire, and uh, so with that, he decided, okay, maybe I shouldn't call the song Gun Control. Maybe I need to change my um, process here. And uh, we got a more general political song uh, where he kind of just showcases different people who are struggling under this uh, current regime, living hand to mouth, as he says. Um, uh Honestly, I really dig this song. I think it's uh, not just in terms of the commentary, but I like the Honestly, To me, it sounds a lot like In Excess. Like the vocals give me that kind of Michael Hutchins vibe. And I think he does that very well. And what's really, what, I love a song like this because I feel like this is the kind of song I could imagine listening to as a kid and the social context of it going completely over my head but still just enjoying that hook and great song craft. It does have that going for it. Um, Yeah, it, it's not the best here, but I would call this possibly the most underrated track on the album. I can see where it's underrated. I, I enjoy this track. Um, In my opinion, it should have opened the second side. As far as pacing yeah. goes, I think it would have been a really strong opener. I like... We don't get much of a third person narrative from him as hardcore as this one goes um, where he's looking at, at someone and, and talking about it. It's more of a first person that we get throughout this album. And I like that. I like this story is driven and it never really loses my, it never really loses my ear as a listener story wise. And then on top of that, it's on a strong beat. So you've got these two propellers that are taking this, this song. And I think, 
I don't think. That's really one of the reasons why I love it um, is because it, it moves together uh, simultaneously on, on both levels here. It's such a cool look at the poverty of America, too, with the hand to mouth. I don't necessarily see why he would even put Margaret Thatcher inside of a quote there because it, he's using the words America. He's using the example of America. He's using the example of Jimmy. He's using the example of the American gods. Um, it, it was a really cool look into into poverty. And to do, I think it's genius again to do the hand to mouth um, you know, something that we're all familiar with as a saying and, and really using it inside of this narrative. I dug this. It's definitely, if it's not a hit with his fans, then it is underrated because this is the jam piece on side two. Yeah, I, I think it's underrated as far as songs on an album that sold 25 million copies. Heard. Heard. <laughs> yeah. But um, interestingly, I think to give this story cred, um, one of the most well-known folk protest singers, Joan Baez, actually covered this song. I haven't heard her version, but it exists. It makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. It did. It really does. Um, pretty wild to think about, but it makes perfect sense once you hear the song. I I, I also read um, the comparison of him being the 80s Elton John or something like that. And this is really the only song that I could be like, okay, I can see that. Well, speaking of that, before I go on to the next song, very quick tangent here. Um, when it comes to that Rock Hall tribute, I am really um, surprised, surprised and a little disappointed that Elton John was at the ceremony for his longtime collaborator, Bernie Taupin, was inducted and he was there to perform for that. He performed with a few other folks. He did not participate in the George Michael tribute. I am not thrilled about that because he was right there. They duetted together. It was a hit duet. That, um, yeah, really am not understanding why he was not part of that duet. I don't know if there was like a limit on how much he could perform, but that was the closest connection they had to George Michael outside of Andrew Ridgely of all the people at that ceremony. That's interesting. I'm, I'm curious to see why that happened. Yeah, I... I'm not getting it. That's for that is for sure. No disrespect to anybody who did perform, but that was it right there. And he could have, well, he could have done any of these songs justice. But would want anybody to sing a father figure? It would have been Elton John. Heard that? Oh, that would that would have been sick. Yeah, I, I'm just saying that. I, I take it back. If Elton did it, it would have been great. Yeah, but um. Actually, I think Elton doing this next song could have been really fun, too. One of our more rock and roll tracks here, which is um, track number seven, Look At Your Hands. This was one of those first two tracks recorded for the album in 1986, along with I Want Your Sex. Um, and it's the only song with a co-writer. This one was co-written with um, David Austin who uh, is one of George Michael's, uh, was one of George Michael's really good friends. He knew him almost as long as he knew Andrew Ridgely, actually, going back to um, grade school or middle school about that time. So since childhood. Um, and uh, the idea was that David Austin, he had been in a band with um, M George and Andrew, but he was going to record this as a solo artist. But that uh, 
didn't end up happening as time went on. It was decided, nope, we're going to put it on Faith instead. Um, and uh, apparently David Austin was not happy about that at first, which I can kind of see, but he actually probably ended up making far more money in royalties by having his song included on Faith than he would have if he recorded it. Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about all that, but it seems like that was like a hey man, this is a great song, but why don't you put it on my album? Yeah. We can do this and I'm gonna reach a lot more ears in all you know, I would have to think. Uh, yeah. Know, but I mean David Austin did end up working with George Michael a lot after this. It, it the anger didn't last for too long, but um no, this was the one I learned the most about because uh it's Definitely not the most popular song here. It was not a single. Um, but uh, yeah, this was something I um, looked into a bit. And I, I think it actually makes a lot of sense because in a lot of ways, this song doesn't fit in with all these songs that much. Um, I mean, even in the book I read, said they kind of were going for more of like a Rolling Stones vibe when writing the song, which I can definitely hear. And uh, one of the guys even said, like, to make it a George Michael song, they just probably just added a lot of reverb <laughs> to it to make it fit in a bit. Um, I, I think it is a bit of an odd fit on the album, but I do, I still enjoy it. I think it's very catchy. I mean, any song you put that na-na-na-na in, it'll be stuck in your head. That's just a magic trick for a pop song, I guess you can say. Um... Yeah, I don't think it's a classic, but I, I'm not going to lie. It's gotten stuck in my head a lot <laughs> this week. Uh, so, um, yeah, not not the best here, but it's not it's not bad, I don't think. No, it, stuck in the head is perfect, man. First thing I have here is earwig of a diss track here, because this is really a hardcore yell at an old lover. Like, I can't believe what you're doing now, who you're with, your two fat kids and your drunken husband. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty hardcore uh, song regardless. I don't think it could have fit anywhere else except right behind hand to mouth because you have this American mindset. Um, and this, with that, it's so wild you said stones because immediately, like it definitely does. It has this, western slash american sound with the keys and the horns and the whole rock and roll but it, it sounds like something straight off exile which is is pretty crazy to think in 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 hindsight um it's not a terrible song it really isn't it's it's a very catchy tune that like i said before can only be right here on this album you put this on the first half of the album it almost sounds like you have no idea where you are <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but here you've you've made enough of a statement where you can and have this and i like the fact that this rock and roll harkens back a little bit to the rock and roll that we heard in faith so it gives it another little silver lining playbook um way of attaching itself to this album i mean and also in all honesty this is probably better than a good bit of the stones 80s hits yeah i mean yeah it, not it, not their best uh decade i mean not i'm not gonna say it's better than start me up but is it better than on a mixed emotions i'm thinking yeah possibly there you go yeah 
That's that's what I mean. I'm not don't come for me. I'm not saying anything horrible, too horrible, I promise. That's not really a I don't think that's too much of a hot tea take. No, I don't think that's a hot tea take at all. No. Okay. Especially since I backtracked a bit. But um <laughs> anyway, we're, we're gonna go away from the stones. We're gonna go back to the bringing in the funk with our next song, which is Monkey. Uh um so he wrote this song for a friend who was struggling with a drug addiction, which a monkey is a metaphor for that. It's like, do you love your monkey or do you love me? But uh, even though it's kind of a depressing matter, it's a very upbeat club song, really. Like, this is a get-up-off-your-butt-and-dance kind of track. Um, but uh, what's very interesting about this song is... um. It was done, but George Michael, uh, once it, the album cycle was still going, it was decided that Monkey would be a single. And George Michael decided, well, uh, not the album version. I don't think that's really single-worthy. So he had heard um, a remix of Janet Jackson's Nasty done by that song's producers, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and he called them and asked them, like, what would you do if you were the Doom Monkey? And so... Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis produced the single version of Monkey. Hmm. Which um is pretty crazy. What's interesting to me is so um I've heard this song a good bit on Sirius XM's 80s on 8, and it's always been the album version that's been played, not the single remix that well topped the charts. This was his uh, time to do that. Um I mean the Number One's column even pointed out maybe the fact that they sold so many different remixes of it helped it go to number one. I don't think having a video with um, Paula Abdul choreographing her either, <laughs> frankly. Right. Um, but um, yeah, this is definitely a number one that's been forgotten quite a bit with time. It doesn't even have 10 million streams on Spotify. Um which is pretty, uh, that's kind of shocking for a song that was a number one hit, but uh, I dig it. I really do. Uh, in both the album version and the single form. I mean, is it kind of a lightweight song? Yes, but it does, I think I think it does the funk better than any other song here. I think this is his best funk track. And uh, again, it's an earwig of a song. This is the one that's been stuck in my head the most. Like, why can't you set your monkey free? I love it. I jam on this album. I mean, I'm sorry. I jam on this song here. You, we started the night and, and we started our video and you were singing this and it took everything in me not to be like, oh my God, let's talk about this because I wanted to save it for now. Um, here, Hot tea take. This is as close as he comes on this album to being in the league with Michael or Prince as far as that funk goes, uh, as far as that sound goes that he said coming out of Wham that he was looking to be in the league with. This is... I see where you're going with Lightweight because it doesn't hit heavy funk, you know? It is very light on the ears, but this song, man, is... It's a banger. It gets down. And on top of that, he's talking about, you know, a drug addiction, getting the monkey off your back and finally loving me. And I think he handled it really well as far as the way his lyrics went throughout this. It could have been a one note thought and he really 
made it last throughout this song. Uh, this is a very, very well done song. It This is up there in my, oh my gosh, what am I going to pick for a favorite song on this album? Because this one, this one sings, man. And, and this late in the album too, it's a really cool piece, a linchpin, if I will, for the second half of this album. Yeah, I would have to agree. And when it, uh, I have to say the single remix definitely helps when it comes to the Michael and Prince, because guess who Jam and Lewis first played with Prince? Uh, <laughs> heard that. They, were, See, they, were, they were in the time, so. There you go. And I have to say, I've never heard the single. And after we get off this, I want to go listen to it and see the similarities and the differences. But this is going straight off that album track. You know, it, it's cool to hear these these self-conscious in a good way, these, you know, these thoughts of this musician who is just evolving and evolving. We talk about the evolution of, of different people's sounds. It's cool to see him always chasing the next level to reach out to producers after you've already put this, you know, out and, and, and recorded it is a really neat thing. As far as an artist, it's very selfless, uh, in in making music and i dig that yes most definitely um but um we are going to move away from the funk and go to jazz actually with um the song that ended the uh cassette and vinyl edition of the album at least um track nine kissing a fool this song actually was written in early 1985 while wham was on tour and uh, George Michael knew this was not a Wham song. Um, he, he knew, like, this is for when I'm not doing Wham. So, um, and he was right. They were not going to do a jazz pop song. And uh, crazy, George Michael recorded his vocals for this song acapella in just one take. But uh, he didn't have the whole thing done. So he contacted um, John Altman, who had... Uh, arranged a couple of jazz covers for the singer Allison Moyet, who was in the duo Yazoo, known as Yaz in the United States, but um, much more popular in the UK, as she was a British singer. And um, Altman got his people to play on this song, and uh, we created a very nice little jazz tune that managed to make it up to number five on the Hot 100 as the album's final single. Um... I think that's just kind of proof that George Michael could kind of do no wrong in the eyes of many at this point. You could get the, um, uh, to get a jazz track in the top five. That's mind blowing. <laughs> that this was top five. You, to do no wrong is an understatement, in my opinion, because this is, this one has, for me, has a very tough time fitting here. It wasn't until I got to read the context of what it was written about and the reason why he chose that swing jazz uh, composition because it had a, a very reserved feeling to it. And he didn't, from what I took, he didn't want to say too much inside of his uh, feelings, inside the relationship, inside the song. Um, but yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't, fit at first for me especially as the penultimate track to the album okay uh, i mean interestingly this 
still has way more streams than Monkey, which was uh the number one hit. Um, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. But uh, yeah, you do know there is some serious jazz pop cred here because um, Michael Bublé actually did a cover of the song in his uh, major label debut album. I could see that easy. It, it yeah, fits I immediately Bublé. thought Michael Bublé. If he hasn't done this song, he definitely should. Of course, he did. Yeah, he did. Um, yeah, I I thought you'd like this song a bit more. I'm not gonna lie. I dig it as a song. I I don't mean to take anything away. Okay. I wanted to say that while we were talking about you know the the swing style and why it was picked. I I think this has some genius behind it because of the reading that he picked that swing style for its reservation uh as a as a music style i like this because at first it really feels tongue-in-cheek because it's in this swing style to me but it ends up being a straight and true testimonial of his feelings and i dig that i i don't think this is a bad track i just it hits different and it, it takes you for a loop at first um it's one that's grown on me that, that is very, that's a fair point. It is different at first, but it's also, I mean, it's not my go-to genre. It's not, I have heard the song before, but it's not the first thing I think of when I think George Michael, but I do appreciate it for what it is, even if it's just not my, just not what I'm looking for necessarily. Again, it's more Michael Buble than George Michael. So, um... But uh, yeah, the CD and uh, the standard streaming edition of this ends with um, uh, a song titled A Last Request, subtitled I Want Your Sex Part Free. This is the um, slow jam segment of I Want Your Sex. These were actually all combined together in a 13-minute long uh, um, mix called the Monogamy Mix. And I just have to say, I absolutely love that remix name. Um, brilliant right there. Um, I, I have to say this is my least favorite of the three parts of I Want Your Sex. Uh, I just, um, I don't know. I, I don't dislike it, but I feel like I actually thought Kissing a Fool was a really good album closer for me. I don't think this ends the album as well. I can kind of see why this was just a bonus track. Um, Another bad comparison, but I, that bonus track was Leave Me Alone, which I think is an essential Michael Jackson track. Th this is much more of a bonus track than an essential George Michael track. But, um, I mean, it's cool that he did so much with this idea. I'll give him that. Yeah, it's definitely, you can definitely see it's something that's near and dear to him. Um, at this time. Yeah, at this time. <laughs> it, it, I guess it makes sense as far as being a nice ribbon to tie that thought process together. As far as an album closer, it really, to me, is a glorified outro. Um, you know, it a bow. It's a bow to this package. And I, Kissing a Fool as the Enders, it just has more impact because it was such a out their song as far as the, his stylings so it gave you a last minute look at something another part of him that you didn't see throughout this album and really left you thinking we talk about that a lot but I, that's important to me on an album closer um so yeah the 
I want your sex outro. I shouldn't say it. that's not what it's called, uh, but it ends up being this this glorified outro to me. Yeah, I I can kind of kind of see. I definitely can see what you're saying there. Not kinda, but um, there we have it. Faith, uh, one of the biggest albums of the '80s. Um, and uh, yeah, what what a what a ride. Really enjoyed talking about this one. Yeah, and it didn't even come up, but I, I had never listened to the album all the way through, so it was cool to really get the full experience on this. I mean, of course, I know a lot of these tracks. You you would have to be living under a super giant rock not to know stuff like Faith or Father Figure, a, a bunch of them. I mean, there's so many singles on this, and it was in the prime of the radio play in my life. Um, but it was cool to to sit down and really go through this a bunch this week. Yeah, most definitely. Um, but with that being said, uh, what what is your final grade for this album? George Michael's Faith, a really really cool album coming out of an artist that I will say and you've you guys have already heard me uh, say that I didn't even know he had these chops. Um, I think, not I think, this album really gives a great look at what he wants to do as a musician, what he can do as a musician. And from the start to the end, it really showcases all these little hidden pieces of himself as a musician for me. It does have times like the the drawn out I Want Your Sex where it slows down a bit for me, but it doesn't really falter on an album as far as pacing goes to the point where it takes me out hardcore. Um, I have to give this one a B. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm a sucker for eighties pop. I'm going to give it an a minus. Um, there are a couple songs I don't like quite as much, but, um, Overall, I mean, there are stone cold classics here that do um that make the weaker moments like not sing as much, I guess you can say. And even the weaker moments aren't unlistenable. I don't feel like I much must reach for the skip button every time, even if I wouldn't necessarily seek them out. But overall, I do think this is a classic album deserving of its acclaim. And uh, I, I think it's a shame that George Michael's no longer with us because um just would have been great to have heard what else he could have come up with. Most definitely. Yeah. Most definitely. Um, what's your favorite song on the album? It's tough, man. I got I got a few on here. I got a few. It really was between Monkey and Father Figure, and I got to go Monkey. Okay, well, that's fine, because I it's Father Figure for me. <laughs> it, it was never a contest. There's a lot of great songs here, but there, there was never a contest. That's the one I've always gone back to. I've always loved. I loved it the first time I heard it. And I always will. I've never gotten sick of it. I I didn't share this anecdote, anecdote before, but the first, this one, Father Figure was with me as a kid only because, not only because, but I remember the like it's always been stuck in my head forever so father figure definitely had some uh, nostalgia for me <laughs> well I, I mean hey it's a hard to forget song that's <laughs> yep yeah 
Um, it's one I'm very grateful for. It's such a cool song. And it's about whatever you want it to be. You know I love songs like that, where they're whatever you want it to be. <laughs> Those are my kind of songs. But um, wow, what a wild ride we took with Faith. And this, I have no idea, actually. But what did you pick as your Rock Hall album for this month, uh, based on this year's class of inductees? I didn't. You didn't? <laughs> I thought we picked the Cheryl Crow album. You, no, you you had to decide which one. Oh shit! Well, then I gotta decide real quick. I'm sorry. I thought we decided I, already. I, I mean, I thought we didn't. We say, uh, hold on. There's a few you can choose from. I want you to. I thought I thought we had said one when we when we talked no. about. It. I was like, let's go. Well, then I gotta get in there. Or you could change your mind. You could do Missy no. if you want. I, there's not. A, I don't think there's enough to talk about on a Missy album. Fair. Other than production and like yeah how she changed the game but we could say we're, we're gonna have to say that 80 times yeah you know what i'm saying yeah rage could be fine to do i just think it's quite a shift in between george michael and dolly part no of course of course it is there's and there's good stuff to talk there but there's not this anything. isn't the time yeah no uh -huh. Oh man. I mean, Tuesday Night Music was in my CD case. Oh, ha, ha, ha. Come on, come on, or Tuesday Night Music. Pick for me. Oh. My heart is telling me, come on, come on. Yeah, let's do come on, come on. 2002. Yeah, that's better for me because soak up the sun's nostalgia for me. I like that. Come on, come on. Okay. And I think there's a there's a Stevie Nicks connection in that album, I think, too. I like it. Okay. All right. So what, tell, please tell us what you will be picking for our, your album. This is a tough song. one. This was a tough one for me. We we have, I, I have a bunch of different artists this year. Um, you know, whether it be Rage, whether Rage, everybody figures I'm going to pick, <laughs> you know, Missy, same deal. But uh, I got to put it up there to one of my favorite ladies. Uh, we talk about my infatuation with her a bunch. Um, so we're going to do the 2002 album from Cheryl Crow. Come on, come on. A very good pick. Um and that one, I know that one has a connection or two to one of my very favorite ladies, Stevie Nicks, who performed for Cheryl Crow's induction. So I'm very excited to discuss that one. And it has one of the biggest and best hits of my childhood. I know that one does. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw her this year, too. I got to go back and look, but I'm almost positive 2002 was the first time I saw her live. Yeah. I got the CR at Ocean's Calling. So. I know, man. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she did only one song from this album, but it's the one that mattered the most, um, at least in our consciousness. But uh, anyway, um, yes, thank you all for joining us. Thank you for setting your monkeys free and uh, all that, having the keeping the faith. Um, but next week, it, it's a bit cold out to be soaking up the sun. <laughs> but come on come on you, you know you're still gonna listen to us so until then take care of yourselves and stay safe and healthy
Peace.